This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Labor Day. Yeah. Happy don't work on a day for work. It's a day for work. It's a day about workers, not about working, which is why we're releasing a podcast during it because podcasts aren't work. No, they never are. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And instead of work, we read. We read books. (laughs) Books and it's never work. Every week, one of us reads a book and then tell that we've never read before, and then tells the other one of us about it. Yeah, that's how it goes. That's the deal with our podcast. Craig read the book this time. Yeah, and what is the book that you read? It's called Little Women, and it's written by Louisa May Alcott. Nice. Uh, I believe it was published in 1868. Sure. The second half of it was published in 1869. That sounds um, right. If you are buying the British edition of this book, you will see the second half published as a separate volume called Good Wives. Uh-huh. Um, there are two sequels to this book called Little Men and Joe's Boys. Uh, <laughs> Joe's Boys is a sequel to Little Men, and it follows some boys that I guess get introduced at the end of this book. Joe's so. Boys sounds like the uh, like a 70s spinoff of another show. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Well, that's fitting. It's a spin-off. It's a 1870s spin-off of this novel. So mm-hmm. that fits. It sounds like a Happy Days spin-off or something like oh, you would have yeah. gotten or like a Facts of Life type thing. Joe's well, Boys. Yeah, like if if one of them like went off to just go teach at a school and then yeah, like, or just like moved a, over there. Yeah, like an orphanage for boys. Well, Joe's that's, Boys. I, that's sort of why it's called that. <laughs> ironically oh, wow i'm really nailing this one huh um, uh nothing new under the sun andrew what do you really want what do you want to know about louisa may alcott i, I want something yeah i want to know everything you got we talked about the book march uh laura and i talked about this a couple months ago which is like a retelling of it's not a retelling it it centers this uh the the father of this book who is absent from most of this narrative um, we talked about that a couple months ago, so like maybe you've listened to that, maybe you haven't, maybe you want to go listen to it, but I think we can still uncover some new Alcott stuff today. Andrew, go. Um, so 1832 is when Louisa May Alcott was born. 1888 is when Louisa May Alcott died. Those are two facts about <laughs> Louisa May Alcott. Okay. Um, she grew up with and like the, the family was friends with a lot of the intellectuals of the day. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, Henry David Thoreau. They were all just chilling all the time. This like thinking about stuff. Super group. The transcendentalists. The transcendentalists. Um, and on that topic, her dad is kind of an interesting guy. I wrote down in in my notes that he was sort of an intense deadbeat. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. He, he is hung credit- out. Yeah, yeah, sure. He hung out. He like started this school for transcendentalism. He hung out with transcendentalists and he like in keeping with that worldview, he demanded perfection from a family that he was serially unable to provide for. <laughs> Correct. A lot of what gets talked about in this book is uh, the ways in which young women learn to be <laughs> at least moderately self-sufficient. And I can't imagine where that came from. Yeah, um, Alcott and her two, The I think there were four, uh, four Alcott children. Um, yes. And then the three oldest ones had to get jobs to help support the family pretty early on and only the youngest one uh, was able to go to public school at all so it was not a not a very rich family um she was born in germantown which later became part of philly so a hometown yeah. gal mm-hmm. um the family was like very briefly part of the underground railroad um she uh was single throughout her life just a bunch of little little facts that i got here Sure. Um, the book, I think, <laughs> takes place actually like they moved up to the Massachusetts area um, in like what is called Hillside is where the home is. Um, they reference going to New York and stuff. Um, she did get into writing. So the main character of this book, Josephine, is basically Louisa May Alcott. Basically, like the basically the girls map to excuse me, the little women map to. Her family, as you said, Andrew. Anna is the older sister, which is Meg in the book. Um, Lizzie is the slightly younger daughter who maps to Beth in the book. And then May is the youngest daughter who is named Amy. So real good. Just like (laughs) shift the letters around there. Um, And then in the book, yeah, Josephine becomes an author. So the the first part, as I said, the original publication of Little Women which was like her publisher said, you should write a book for girls. And she said, that Uh sounds boring and I'd be bad at it. And she (laughs) did it anyway. They both agreed it was sort of boring, but a bunch of young girls that they had read it really liked it. So they published it and it made a bunch of money. (laughs) Little girls don't know anything. Like little kids don't know anything. Not just little girls. Kids don't know what they like and they don't know what good stuff is. That's true. But it did make a lot of money and people (laughs) do like it and did like it at the time. Um, but yes, the first part is like semi-autobiographical and then the second part, I, it's unclear to me. Good, good wives. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. The second part as defined by like the UK release. Yes. And, and in current publications, there is a big thing that says part two. Um, and it's unclear to me how much of that, there's still some, like a couple milestones that line up with Alcott's life, but there is some, you know, there's some scholarship about the, she was getting fan letters after the first one being like, who are all the women going to marry? What's going to happen to them? <laughs> and I, I put that in kind of a goofy voice because uh, Alcott's reaction, even though she was very like happy to receive the letters, was like, hmm, I should subvert some of these expectations. Not all of them. Not all of them, but some of but them. But some of them. Because she herself was single throughout her life. And she actually, there's a letter that she wrote in which she said, um, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. <laughs> um, she did have a romance with a, a Polish man in Europe hmm. uh, named Laddie was what the people called him. Um <laughs> She that that was something that she kept mostly to herself in in her journals though. Sure. Um, 
what else? I mean, I know she was an abolitionist. I know she was a feminist. I know in the Civil War she worked briefly as a nurse. That's before true. Before she contracted typhoid. That was just one of the many health issues that she had throughout her life. Like she could have had anything from just an autoimmune disease to lupus to mercury poisoning. Nobody's really sure. House but MD was not there to tell us what it was, is what no. you're saying. Or his like great great grandfather. Yes. Papa House. House the butcher. <laughs> which is what the doctor would have been in those days. Okay. Um and yeah, so she just she had poor health all her life and she died of a stroke at age fifty five. Yep. And the book is uh I think it was G.K. Chesterton, who's a That's a good name. Yeah, he's a uh author that I think C. S. Lewis liked a lot. He praised this book and saying that she like invented a form of realism that wasn't gonna show up for another few decades. Some contemporaries disliked it because it thought that it was going to like crush uh, a different type, like a burgeoning different type of womanhood that might have arisen. Like I was contrasting this book in my head with it's like find some revolutionary ways to live within accepted modes of domesticity um, with something like The Awakening, which we talked about really early on this show where like which came out in 1899 or something like that and like womanhood is a prison that will kill you like Uh marriage and things like that societal womanhood is just out to get you Mm -hmm. um still is it still is unfortunately in many ways thanks patriarchy and so this book doesn't exactly deal with that and it is set uh you know during and just after the civil war it doesn't really deal with any of that directly except to explain why certain characters like aren't on screen um that there's no like oh we're we're dealing with soldiers coming through or we're not talking about slavery at all or anything like that it really is just about these girls just living their lives i like thinking about what's on screen in the context of a book yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I could have said on stage that would have been more contemporary to this On the book. page. Yeah, but you just An meant like people... Area of focus. Yeah, I know. It's just a metaphor. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then also this book will get referenced... This book gets referenced a lot throughout Little Women. The Pilgrim's Progress which is like a 17th century Christian allegory by John Bunyan. I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show, Andrew. Has it ever I don't come think up? we have. No, maybe we, should, maybe we should read it or not. Yeah, we probably should just to see what's up with it. It's called one of the first English novels, like novels written in like modern English as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an everyman kind of Christian allegory. A guy goes on a quest from the city of destruction to the celestial city, a pilgrimage, you might say. Uh-huh. Um and along the ways like deals with a lot of uh hallmarks of of Christendom and things like that. He carries burdens, he endures obstacles, and the girls multiple times throughout this book um talk about like how they when they were younger used to play Pilgrim's Progress and it's a it's a way for them to understand the work that they have to do in their lives. So okay. that that should use that as like a framework for I guess some of the morality of this book because I think there's some stuff that's pretty good and there's some stuff that's a little what that happens. Um, But I think it has this kind of 
it's not preachy, but it's starting somewhere like that. Well, so tell me about it. Tell me about these little women. I'll tell you about How these. little are Are we talking like borrower size or? <sighs> Oddly enough, like adequate human size. Human sized little women. Yes. The, I think the title is misleading in that regard. <laughs> they are right. just conventionally sized teenage-ish women. Yeah, I feel like maybe regular size women wouldn't have been is not as <laughs> is not as grabby. No. Uh there's some like scholarship that says she's like make talking about like a Dickensian meaning of little, like they're not full women yet, like they're not adult women. I guess she didn't have the word tweens when she wrote this book, and I think she didn't have the word teenager either. So she just okay. said little women. Instead of, like, young women. Yeah. Sure. Which she could have done. I don't know. So tell Um, me about these regular-sized women. I'll tell you about these conventionally-sized women. Meg is 16. She's the oldest. Sort of the motherly one. Um, She's, you know, bright and fun. And uh, people like her. Uh, She really aspires to, like, just kind of be a good woman like she wants to run a good house when she grows up whatever that's like a, a a good woman as defined by the standards of the day pretty much standards of the day yeah and she is she does work for a living i think she's a governess for a nearby family um for like the king's family i think so she does earn some money um, well, in, the, in one of the ways that women are sort of allowed to earn money too i think yes yeah, certainly yeah, she's not like. Also, the war is on, and she is not able to go off and you know none of them are able to go off and serve. Sure. Um, so I think we're you know it's eighteen sixty one. The war's on now. Josephine, who's fifteen, our main girl, uh, main woman, main little women. Um, she's headstrong. She's a little tomboyish. She like explicitly bemoans being a girl a couple of times, like mm-hmm. in so much as she wanted to go off and serve. Their father is. Uh, serving in the war as a chaplain, like he's too old and not fit to be a soldier, so he's off to be a to be a chaplain to dudes in the army, mm-hmm. Union Army. Um, she's really interested in books. She really wants to be a writer, and over the course of the book, her writing career is like is her track aside from her interest in other people. She like kind of works. She's like a companion to her aunt, who is her dad's sister, who's like standard 19th century crotchety old lady character sure um but she like gets paid to go over there and like read to her and like take care of the poodle and there's an annoying bird i don't like being in houses with birds i'm just gonna say that right now you don't like being in houses with birds birds that talk specifically because like they parrots? don't, they don't know when not to talk is the problem. How I, how often does this come up? I guess is my question. Um, I have a couple friends who have owned birds, and like intellectually, I find it fascinating that like I heard a bird mimic an entire phone conversation once, <laughs> but I don't like that they just yell all the time, with no mind for like my life. Mm-hmm. They're very loud, Andrew. It's like having a kid. It is, except you keep it in a cage and it like poops everywhere. It's like having a kid. And <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, she doesn't like going over there either. So Joe's with me on this one. 
Okay. Um, then there's Beth, who I just wrote the nice one. Like she is a little oh, the nice one. She's a little simpler in her ambitions than the others. Uh, they often describe her as kind of being more pure of heart. She's very shy. Uh, she's the most musically gifted of the family. This is something cute. Like sometimes at the end of the day, they all just gather around the piano and like sing for a little bit, and then they go to bed. It's really sweet. It's just like that's fun. Good times, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, she also has like dolls that she dresses up and stuff like that. I guess one thing about these little women is that. Uh, so Amy is twelve, and I'll get to Amy in a second. But like. And she's the youngest. She's the yes. youngest. Okay. If if I didn't, if I wasn't told explicitly by the book, I'd guess by modern standards that they were all like three years younger. Just in some of their behavior, they're not, uh, like they're not like modern teens who like drive cars when they're sixteen oh, no. or seventeen. They ha- I don't think they don't have horseless cars, carriages obviously. were a thing yet. Yeah, but part of it might just be like that model of tight-knit family just reads different now i don't know they're i don't know how quite to describe it but it feel they're they you're saying they read younger. they read younger than they are that's uh, that's the opposite of what i would have guessed i i think and and yeah cuz all p- part of it is like they spend a lot of time playing pretend together and it's not like elaborate pretend but it's like today is the day where we are the busy bee society and we take all our knitting down to the river and like talk while we're all like busy and get work they just, done. They hadn't invented TV yet. <laughs> what do you sure. want? Yes. They do have like a Pickwick paper that's inspired by Dickens where they're part of like a society of like men and lawyers who talk about Dickens things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what's neat is Alcott when she gets into these like sections will not use the correct character names. She'll use whoever they're like pretending to be. Uh, and then if like one of them has like a offhand comment to the side, she'll like actually use the real name. It works pretty well. Huh. Um, so Amy, let me get back to Amy real quick. She's the youngest. Uh, she's sort of a snot, which is like fitting <laughs> because her primary characteristic early in the book when we're introduced to her is that she's unsatisfied with her nose. She's a pretty little girl, but her nose doesn't... Except for her nose. Well, it's not that her nose is like unattractive. It's just not the nose she wants. Sure, she okay, wants so like... she has a super busted nose. <laughs> she wants a gr- like a Grecian nose, mm-hmm. and it's not. It like has an upturn or something. I don't really understand nose terminology. <laughs> Let me confess. You don't. I know the parts of the nose. You don't nose what you're talking ah! about. Oh God. Um, she's like fine. She another characteristic of hers is that she always says like the wrong word. Like at one point, a boy is like riding around on a horse, and she calls him a cyclops and they're like haha amy you mean centaur or uh, she's writing a letter later and she writes uh she uses she uses corroborate instead of contradict like she's like close she's using like the right size words but they're all wrong and everyone kind of goofs on her a little bit sure um she's also very into drawing and and art and wants to be an artist when she grows up. And she's also really into upper-class manners. So one of the interesting things about the marches 
is that they're they used to have means they used to be kind of rich but there was something to do with like loaning money that that burned them and so now they have this kind of like genteel upper middle class but paycheck to paycheck lifestyle um you mean are they like accustomed to a certain lifestyle that they won't give up or do they find ways to i don't know act like they're upper class despite not actually being that way or how is that it's more that they are they are very clearly in between other social classes so like one of their neighbors mr lawrence has like a big mansion he's super rich the first chapter of the book it's christmas and they go give all of their breakfast to the poor like german immigrant family down the street Mm -hmm. um they're never like there's never a crisis of poverty but they are aware that they are not people of means in as much as they get invited to parties with people who are rich because they used to be rich, but they are not themselves. So like you see it, they get very nervous about having the right clothes or having enough clothes or, you know, inviting everybody over to a cool party and having to spend a little extra money to make the party good, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually been written about as why part of the book's appeal at the time. And I, I, I kind of agree with that because you could really see yourself in whichever direction you want to go. Like Amy obviously has like upward mobile, like wants to marry a richer man and kind of she's studying upper class manners and wants to really live in that life. Meg is like, this life's fine. I just kind of want to, you know be good at it mm-hmm. um and joe is like ah i kind of want to strike out on my own and be a writer and, and i'll be self-sufficient that way and bet's like this is cool i'll just hang out i'm just gonna live here <laughs> um so the the first third of this book is like a series of individual stories that many of which uh focus on a single daughter uh, and many of which have like a convenient lesson to learn at the end of it. Um, I have a couple examples. I don't want to do all of them because that would take up all of our time, but they each like pertain to f- w- the girls like discovering a thing about themselves as they start to become an adult, right? Okay. Um, so the first one is it's Christmas and they give all their food away to the poor family. And then after they put on their little Christmas play for their friends, the rich neighbor dude, Mr. Lawrence, like gives them all of this food. And there's this uh, like lesson to be had in giving is better than getting. And is it? I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, I guess I like to receive things. I like gifts. Mm-hmm. But I guess there's something to be said for like giving people stuff when they need sure. it. Yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> Uh, to each their own. To each their own, I suppose. Mr. Lawrence, giving them all this stuff, also introduces a main character in the book, uh, Teddy Laurie. He's a neighbor boy who is sort of a shut-in. Like, his parents died, and now he lives with his grandpa, and his grandpa wants him to, like, study real hard and go to college, and he's smart and really nice, but also kind of a prankster. Mm-hmm. Um He's so I sort of see him as like a rich Tom Sawyer character. Like he's he's getting into scrapes and causing mischief, but always ends up apologizing correctly. Uh he slots into the family sort of as sort of like a brother. 
mm-hmm. um, and one of the overarching like tension tension but one of the questions of the whole like story is is one of them gonna end up with laurie later and you don't really know sure who it's gonna be um but they it has to happen because all the little women have to be paired off by the end yeah for the most part um so there are four stories in the first half that are worth talking about uh a short one is that like beth who's super shy uh, gets invited by, as I said, she loves music. They have a crappy piano in their house and she gets invited to like sneak into Mr. Lawrence's house to play his piano. Um, is that and, like a euphemism? No, <laughs> it's, this is one of the, sections, <laughs> this is one of the sections that actually like makes me think they're so much younger. Cause she's like shyly standing around the kitchen and Mr. Lawrence is talking to Mrs. March and he's just like saying out loud, no one plays my piano. If someone just like came into my house and played it, I don't think they'd get into any trouble. And then he like turns around and looks at Beth's like, are you the musical girl? And she like runs away like super scared. Now she's like 13. I don't, I don't think that's a very shy. That seems like an eight year old thing to me of being that type of shy. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. I'm still I'm still stuck on it being a euphemism. <laughs> no, it's not that type of book, Andrew. Okay. Um, but the the end of that story is that she makes him some slippers to thank him, and then in thanks for the slippers, he gives her a new piano to keep in her house, mm-hmm. and she has to like deal with her shyness and walk all the way to his house and like shakes his hand and then thanks him and it's like a big moment of growth for her you know so like those are the little like that's one of the episodes one of the little women episodes that we get Mm -hmm. um one is amy and as i said amy is always concerned about her social standing so we get a snapshot of her at school she's the only one of the sisters going to school and did you know andrew that in the 1860s i get if this book is to be believed one of the one of the big rages was to have limes just to have them just to like eat them to to be in the possession of limes to be she like borrows some money from her sister so that she could buy limes and like have them to prove to the other girls in her class that she's cool like a tamagotchi or pogs maybe <laughs> but limes <laughs> but limes here's a quote it's nothing but limes now for everyone is <laughs> for everyone is sucking them in their desks in school time and trading them off for pencils bead rings paper dolls or something else at recess if one girl likes another she gives her a lime if she's mad with her she eats one before her face and doesn't even offer a suck whoa whoa i'm gonna eat this lime in your face that's a real power move <laughs> I th- it's silly and it's fun to goof on, but I also get it because like just fruit and having fruit, yeah, <laughs> especially exotic fruit would be it would be a big deal. It would be like an economic and class signifier. Having the means to fend off scurvy, yeah, certainly. And I don't I don't know if this still happens in the schoolyards, but definitely in our day there were still things that made people cool or yeah, like you said pogs was one, tamagotchis, Kimbachi, right? Yeah. Um even cell phones to a certain extent, right? 
Not so much for us when we were like kid kids. No. I think by the time we were in high school, it, it started to become a thing. But. Yes. Um, and like having a cool trapper keeper or not having a dumb lunchbox. You know, like I'm fascinated by it being limes, if only because it is such a truism to like middle school that there are social signifiers like that. I just mm-hmm. think it, I'd like the image of tweens just biting limes at each other. Just, yeah. <laughs> So she gets in trouble because she because as is want to happen, limes get banned in the classroom, and you can't oh no. you can't be sucking on limes in class. <laughs> and she gets caught like yo-yos. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or like, what uh, are the things where you like fold up a piece of paper and it tells your fortune? Paper football. Oh no, the um the little yeah I know what you're talking about I forget what they're called here let me google it and figure you, out what the name is while you keep going you yeah so she gets in trouble she has to throw all of the limes out the window uh like two by two and then she actually the teacher like strikes her hand probably with a ruler or something I think and just then, paper fortune teller also called a cootie catcher chatterbox cootie catcher. salt seller whirly bird or paku paku I'm going with cootie catcher. That's the one I know. Okay. Um, but so then she she gets hit by the teacher, like on her hand, corp- corporal punishment style. And then she has to like stand up in front of the class till the end of the period. Uh, and she runs home and is like, I never want to go to school again. And her mom is like, yeah, that he shouldn't have hit you. If you like study at home, that's fine. And she's like, okay, cool. But I re- I'm real sad about those limes. And she goes, well, you did break the rules. <laughs> So we get this interesting, bad, like bad girls don't get limes. Yeah, we get this interesting comment from Mrs. March where she's like, "I wouldn't have punished you that way, but I definitely would have punished you because you got limes when you shouldn't have had limes. That's the rule." Mm-hmm. Um, so then, like Amy learns like a lesson about like she was only getting the limes to show off to people, and she should follow the rules even when she doesn't like them. But there's like a logical end to how you can enforce rules. So Mrs. March has a, has a nuanced morality, I would say. Okay. Um, following that, we get uh, jo- a chapter about Joe and her temper. Um, as I said, she's like the headstrong tomboy type and she is a budding author. So she's been like working on a little book that she keeps. And there's a day when, Lori invites Meg and Amy to go see a play, and Amy wants to come, even though she's a little sick, and they bail on her and don't let her join them. Did that ever happen with you, Andrew? As This never really happened to me because of the age difference and like social difference between me and my sisters. Was there ever a, like, that you can remember, like, really clearly leaving out a younger sibling? I'm trying to think if there ever was anything because... I don't like video games were the big thing in our house and that was sort of a me and my brother thing. Sure. I don't think Jesse and I did a ton of stuff together. I I know what you're talking about, but I I can't like off the top of my head remember anything like that. Okay. Cuz so then my something, childhood. something like this would never have happened to you where Joe comes back and the next morning she wakes up, she can't find her book. She sees Amy like tending the fireplace and she's like yo amy where's my book amy's like you'll never find it Uh i couldn't tell you where it is Mm -hmm. yo she burned it she burned that book oh no 
it's really rough. <laughs> and Joe is like mourning the death of a loved one. And Amy kind of comes around to it and tries to apologize. But Joe's so angry that she pledges never to forgive her. And I then, like, geez, yeah, exactly. Was. So then uh, Joe and Lori go ice skating on the river. And Joe, like, deliberately tells Amy that she's not invited to encourage her to trail along after them. And she picks kind of a, like, rough spot in the river where the ice might not be as thick. Oh, no. And it goes, Stop we, it, kids. Full, it's a wonderful lifestyle. Like, Amy picks a, picks a weak patch, like, falls in. And then Lori and Joe have to save her. And, like, Joe sees her daughter, her, her sister's life flash before her eyes. Mm-hmm. And we learn a lesson about, like, holding grudges and being so angry that you almost kill your sister in a frozen river. Man, yeah. Did, did you ever, when you're growing up with your sisters, almost kill one of them in a frozen river? <laughs> no, I definitely didn't. Over a book-related or possibly lime-related incident? No, I'm fair, like, there. I've been told that, like, my oldest sister... And I would butt heads a lot, and she would tease me and sometimes pick on me and, like, kind of shove me around a little bit mm-hmm. in that, like, you're a little brother, get away from me. And I recall, I've been told this more than I remember it, that I used to kind of, like, throw myself as if I had been punched by a giant, like, into the wall if I was, like, lightly pushed. Um, so it was, like, full-on, like, Dragon Ball Z <laughs> theatrics. Like, like you know... WWF theatrics of like, oh no, I was punched. Uh-huh. I should be, she should be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have strong memories of doing that, but I don't, I, I believe it. I believe that I would do that. Do you ever get in trouble for something you didn't do? I typically got in trouble for stuff that I did do. <laughs> actually, care to share? No, I'm good. Okay. I think if I had, if I had. If it had really been something I hadn't done, I would have been able to convince my parents that I had not done it. But no, a lot of, I just <laughs> I did a lot of the stuff I did do actually. So okay, you don't want that on public record, I no, suppose. I'm okay, good. cool. Okay, just don't great. Need to get into it. Uh, so the end of that chapter is an interesting conversation between Joe and her mom about like the nature of anger. And how it's okay to be angry, but you have to, like, manage it, and you have to recognize that it can have unintended consequences. Um, I don't really remember ever having a conversation with my mom or, or dad about, like, here, I, I understand that you are a human now who experiences feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's a big moment for Joe. Uh, and that they reference that throughout the rest of the book. Uh, and then the big Meg chapter is that she gets invited to a fancy party. Her friend, uh, last name is like Moffat, I think. They are people of means. They have a big, like, week long. They invite her over for like a week. There's like a big party as part of it. And the whole thing is this kind of like impoverished girl hanging out with rich girls. They dress her up. There's some gossip about her family. There's some gossip about who Lori may or may not wind up with in the family, which kind of makes Meg feel really uncomfortable because no one thinks about him that way. That is something that makes it makes them feel younger is that, you know, the two oldest girls are 15 and 16 and 
they the whole family has this really like poo poo on romantic ideas and like flirting is bad and the no one is really considering any sort of marriage until like after they're 20 which i guess just surprised me given the time frame like i you know what i mean yeah i i know what you mean it's it's uh and i'm just i i haven't done the appropriate research so yeah it's like a tension between it's a difference between like victorian type stuff and sure. like the same time period in like more puritanical america yeah yeah i don't know but it just it was not what i expected certainly um and you get the sense that like maybe the marches are exceptional for this behavior and their their opinion that you shouldn't be talking about this though i also don't remember what the ages of like the women in uh downton abbey are even though that's like you know 40 years later Damn and happy and it, well i'm just like thinking about For my book own podcast where we have actually read a lot of victorian books you're gonna go to downton abbey you just That's... got screens on the brain today i do have i got screen brain on um i'm just thinking of like family structures with with young women who have like coming out parties where then they are like there are suitors and things like that i honestly feel like this is the most patriarchy thing ever where like sure you shouldn't be you shouldn't be thinking about men too early, but also if you're not married by the time you're 25, you're a spinster <laughs> and you've outlived your usefulness. That's a good point. Yeah, you've got like five years to figure this out, and woe woe unto you if you do not. Yeah, that's really messed up. Okay, um, so she goes to this party and they like dress her up in a bunch of clothes that she's not comfortable in and like put a bunch of extra makeup on her. And Lori does get invited to this party and is like, Hey Meg, this like looks cool, but it doesn't look like you. And she gets a real like reality check of who she like is and, and who, how she presents herself to people she does or does not care about. Um, and then she comes home and like confesses all of this stuff to her mom. And then we get like, this is one of the things that, uh, rings a little, I don't know, it feels very of the time. So I'm just going to read this quote from Mrs. March. She's talking to her daughters about like the goals you should have for your life. To be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest thing which can happen to a woman. And I sincerely hope my girls may know this beautiful experience. It is natural to think of it, right to hope and wait for it, and wise to prepare for it, so that when the happy time comes, you may feel ready for the duties and worthy of the joy. My dear girls, I am ambitious for you, but not to have you make a dash in the world, marry rich men merely because they are rich, or have splendid houses, which are not homes because love is wanting. And so, like, you get this morality of Mrs. March that is simultaneously, you should have ambitions for yourself that involve, like, knowing the value of work and contributing to the larger world, but also being married is super dope. And like, I really need you all to get married and for it to be a good one. Yeah. But like, I, I do want it to be a good one, but you should get married. And if yes. you don't get married, I'll be disappointed in you, but I want you to be happy, <laughs> but yeah. do get married. It kind of, it goes in circles like that because she does is she's like, oh, I don't want you to just marry a rich dude, but you should, but it should be because you're happy, but do marry a rich guy. <laughs> just, just make sure he has enough money that like you don't die, but also know how to earn your own money. 
it's it's kind of yeah mixed signals from mama march getting back to the patriarchy where all women must be all things (laughs) to all people yeah it's tough because they do laud the girls for their for their individual achievements but it's within this established like domestic structure um and I, i don't know i think that's part of it's written about as part of the book's appeal at the time is like acknowledging real like realistically what the expectations were but then like carving out little ways for you to to be yourself and not just like you know succumb to the to the machine i don't know um a couple major events then like round us through this is at those are all the like the first third of the book right and then we get big events that take multiple chapters and have multiple things that i can kind of do big picture style yeah so, i was just, i was going to ask yeah. if it sounds like there are a lot of little vignettes and and stuff that happened in the book but is it telling one big story other than just like here's the story of this family no it's it's really here's the story of this family so we get uh Uh, like a middle third of the book that's like big events father gets sick mother has to go find him in washington um laurie's tutor john brooke goes with her and he ingratiates ingratiates himself towards the family he likes meg um and spoiler he's gonna marry her eventually He, he makes his intentions known is he rich but not too rich and do they love each other and He is not rich at all, though he works for a rich guy. He's an orphan who is tutoring Laurie, even though he's only like three years older than him. And he ends up, he's going to work real hard. He's going to be a good businessman, but they're never going to be rich. And they love each other and they're going to work at it. Okay, that's that's fine. Yes. That's fine. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about that in a little bit because that's my other like, "Mm, this book. Um, Beth gets scarlet fever. It's very scary. She almost dies. Uh, Amy has to not live in the house because she's never had scarlet fever. So they don't want her to die too. Mm -hmm. And there's this like fear of like, why does the purest of us have to die (laughs) kind of Mm -hmm. thing? Sure. Um, she doesn't die, but she's never quite the same. And then, as I said, while, while they're in DC, John Brooke declares his love for Meg and they do get married after there's like a great scene where the rich, like, you know, crotchety aunt March is like, you shouldn't marry him because he's poor and he'll never amount to anything. And Meg had been waffling on the issue. But in that moment, it's like, but he's all, all super great for these reasons, evil aunt. Now I'm going to marry him just to spite you. <laughs> and that's, she did not intend to drive her niece into marriage with that confrontation, but she mm-hmm. certainly did. Okay. Um, so then, Listen, the, as long as you get married, I guess it doesn't as long, really matter. It doesn't really matter. So the book, the first book, first half of this story, ends with a really funny sentence that I'm just gonna read to you, Andrew. Okay. So the curtain falls upon Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Whether it ever rises again depends upon the reception given the first act of this domestic drama called Little Women. Yikes. If Which... you want more, please please <laughs> comment, like, and subscribe. I love it. Alcott's like, I guess I'll write another book. Hit me on like... hit me on Patreon. <laughs> Check out the little women Instagram, um, our Snapchats, subscribe to our tiny letter. Mm-hmm. You get all the updates. Join the ARG. Yeah, we Great. got a uh, we got a Kickstarter up and an Indiegogo. 
if you if we reach our goals, well, I'll write some more chapters about these little women. Yeah, there, there's that's a moment where Alcott like makes her voice known, and there's another really great moment in the second half of the book when Joe is like trying to sell her stories, and this publisher is like sending her further away from stories with morality, like explicit morals in them. And uh, there's a, he says, people want to be amused, not preached at, you know, morals don't sell nowadays. And then the narrator, <laughs> the narrator just says, which was not quite a correct statement, by the way. Okay. That's a very Ron Howard narrator. <laughs> Let me burn this character that I created. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so part two, then has a similar structure where we like re-meet all the girls and what they're up to. The big things that have changed is that like Amy is embarking on the arts. She ends up getting invited to go to Europe with one of her aunts. Her big plan is I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to look at the best art in the world. And if I think I can make art that good, I'll keep doing it. And if I can't, I'll just go teach art. Mm-hmm. Which very humbling, I think. Those, when she does go there and is like, can't teach. Yeah, that's definitely uh, what ends up happening to her. Uh, Joe writes a novel that is like well received, but also poorly received because she took everyone's advice and like changed everything to suit like twelve different, you know, critics and readers. Um, there's your fable there, and then we get a couple chapters with Meg living with John Brooke. And uh, these chapters, I don't know about Andrew. Mm-hmm. So there's. Can you give one, me just like the quick, the high I will. quickie overview? I will. One is she had said to John at one point, My husband shall always feel free to bring a friend home whenever he likes. I shall always be prepared. And then, of course, one day she's trying to make jelly and it goes bad and she blows up the kitchen or whatever. And that's the one day that he brings a friend home without telling her first. And they get a huge fight about it. And it feels like a home improvement episode. Like that he just should have like called her or sent a messenger. And she's in the wrong for like not. It's one of those things where it's like, why is Meg being punished sort of and has to learn a lesson? I really feel like John should learn a lesson in this moment. As long as somebody learns a lesson, I guess it's all good. <laughs> and then later we get a chapter where he's upset that she's spending all of her time caring for their like newborn twins and he feels left out. So he starts spending time at his friend's house and she goes to her mom and she's like, mom, I can't understand why he's like neglecting me. And her mom's like, have you ever considered how it's your fault, Meg? <laughs> and the lesson there is that she needs to include him more in the child raising and like t- you know allow herself to ask for help with the kids so that she can go off and be social with him and again it's this like circular mama marsh mor- morality where on the one hand yes he should take a more active role with the kids ew it's not your fault that he's not doing that yes you could ask for help so that you could it's okay for you to be with your husband and like do the things that made your relationship what it is. But like you shouldn't be blamed for not making time for that. I don't know. Mrs. March frustrates me. I guess I'm curious with this second part, if it feels like, does it feel like the first part hangs together better? Like, is it, does it feel more 
organic and then this feels like okay gotta cash in on these march girls like <laughs> it doesn't no not it doesn't, exactly not exactly like that but you know what i mean right it doesn't yeah it doesn't feel like a cash in it does feel like a logical extension of the things that she was exploring in the first half okay um, just because that that thing at the at the end that was like <laughs> well if you want me to write more you'd better buy my book like that, so that rubbed yes. me a weird way it did uh, apparently it was published only like a couple months later. So one thing I'm unsure about is how much of it she may have already written or not. Um, the big thing where she took like a, a left turn involves Joe and Amy. So like uh, Beth, unfortunately, passes away. She mm-hmm. does not. She like she does recover from scarlet fever but she kind of starts wasting away a little bit and she has a really like sad conversation with Joe where she's just like, Hey, I realized I'm just not going to make it. Like we should just like hang out and be cool. And Mm -hmm. then I'll see you on the other side. Peace. Okay. And you're like, Beth, that's really sad. (laughs) Uh, The main thing is that everyone obviously wanted to know who's going to end up with Lori, our favorite boy. And there's a lot of strong signs that it's going to be Joe. First, Joe thinks it's Beth, so she, like, leaves and goes to be a governess and meets this, like, 40-year-old German professor that she becomes friends with. And, like, it's sort of romantic. You're not quite sure how that's going to go. Um, Lori professes his love to Joe. She rebuffs him because she think they're, thinks they're too similar and can never get married or else their lives will be terrible. Um, and then he runs away to Europe and ends up getting together with Amy because what i don't know one sister didn't work i guess i'll pick a different one sure and that suits amy's purposes of like living on an upper crust lifestyle and she can kind of use what she's learned and all in all of these social settings and like be with him and i guess that's gonna work out and then joe you know comes back she is like maybe on her way to being a spinster uh as her two older you know her two other sisters get married and who rolls back into her life but this older German professor man who is kind of bumbling. He moved to America to care for his uh, late sister's kids. Um, He was, like, hired to teach these other kids in New York, which is why he met uh, Joe in the first place. And he walks back into her life and is like, hey, I just got this job, and then after I earn money doing that, um, do you want to get married? Do, let's get married. <laughs> okay. And she's like, that sounds great. We'll, and she inherits like property from her aunt and she decides to turn it into a school for boys and like really dictates the terms of their life together. And meanwhile, she's also earning money as an author and like getting stuff published in newspapers. So to answer your question, like uh, Alcott, I think deliberately steered joe away from Lori to like the a lot of the readers identify with joe because she's the main character uh-huh. and had like set up this expectation that they were going to get together and she's like nah 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 she's going to get together with this like bizarre nutty professor dude who <laughs> uh we like she uses the german like he speaks with the german accent and it's certainly used to like slightly clownish effect um even though he's smart and like helps joe learn german and and stuff like that okay um but he is also like 15 years older than her and not a conventional dude by any means 
Um, so there's like, I also like that Joe, it's Joe's plan for what they're going to do after they get married. Like they're living on her family property. She's going to be in charge of this school, even though he's going to like teach in it. And she's going to manage this estate and, you know, try to improve the lives of these boys, which like lines up with how she egged Lori to go off and finish college and, and stuff like that. So she is still getting married and she is like still settling into a home of sorts, but none of it is conventional. Um, and it is expressed that like, that's cool too. Um, so yeah, it, it's not, it's not quite the, the patriarchal expectations of where Meg ends up. And I think there's been a lot of back and forth from folks on, on whether or not they like where Meg ends up because the lessons she learns, I personally don't love, okay. um, in terms of like, I think, I don't, I think John gets a bunch of like free passes from the morality of this book that if you were, you could write, you could write Joe's story today and I think, and still like end up in some of the same beats. Um, but if reading Meg's story today does feel a little like 19th century, I don't know about that. Um, I mean, it was the cent that was the century that it was. So no. Yeah. Like I'm just saying like Joe's story as a girl with, professional ambitions that are both realistic and outside of the norm um is something i think is easier easier to track for a for a modern reader who is a dude in his 30s i will say how about that sure to to cop to exactly where i'm coming from yeah i know i think we all know where you're coming from don't worry about that that's fair um uh, someone asked us which of the characters we I would like and like I liked and didn't like, and I wanted to just make sure that I said that like Amy kind of sucks at times. Okay. I mean, uh, she's the youngest, so that yeah, tracks. it's it tracks. Youngest and, children are just the, the worst. Yeah, they really, yeah, they're I, man. Nobody likes the baby. Who you talk? Are there any of those on this podcast? Ooh, man, they're just bad. Uh, I don't know any. None of them. Not me, certainly. Uh, there's also another youngest kid who sucks. His name is Fred Vaughn, and he <laughs> shows up. There's a chapter where they all like hang out with uh, Laurie for a day, and he invites this like British family that he's friends with to hang out with them. And he like ruins all their games, and is like kind of a jerk to to Beth. And he's just like like later maybe he becomes like a somewhat okay dude that Amy might marry, but thankfully she doesn't um, because he's a stinko. Like, I just, he's every, like, kid that I've had in, like, a summer camp that I'm, like, I come away at the end of the day going, God, I really shouldn't dislike children. (laughs) (laughs) Just because they're wrecking what I've prepared. Sometimes kids are jerks. Like, it's not, (laughs) I know they're not. They are not the people they are going to be eventually sure. yet, but they are the people that they are. And maybe the people that they are just suck. <laughs> that's also possible. I tried I I try to work from a, a presumption that that's not true, but yo, Fred Vaughn sucks. That kid he bites. I'm done with him. All right. Um so that's that's a little women. I, I feel like the one part I gave short shrift because I wanted to move quickly through the second half is Beth. Like Beth is a really fascinating 
arc of this book in terms of loss. I know that Alcott lost a sister young also. I think she was in her like 20s when mm-hmm. she, when her sister passed. Sure. The one that Beth is modeled on. And just this like the slow motion grief of Beth is something that's really interesting and um that not she suffers this traumatic scarlet fever event and then has to kind of like live as uh a little bit less of you know less of her former self and then this like growing sense that maybe she's not okay and just a really rough scene where she's just like hey joe i don't think i'm gonna make it and and everybody kind of has to deal with that um this it's a very affecting part of the book that i i didn't want to give too short shrift to sure um any other questions about these little women, Andrew? No, I, I don't. I don't have any. I don't guess. Um, I guess I'd be curious to see where the where the next two books take them. I don't know that that's something we can really do on the show. But um, and I would be like the one question we got into here that I I wish I had more actual info on was like views of marriageability and and age and stuff on you know in england versus here because i do think that's sure mm-hmm. i do think that's part of what we're seeing with like the the hesitancy to talk about like marriage until until the girls are a little bit older so yeah yeah and something that i would love to know more about also is that some of the reading was mentioning how this book was there and available and popular for immigrants who were coming to the states in the late 19th early 20th century okay and the like self-sufficient the the very kind of you know american christian like bootstrap men, moral mentality um that informs a lot of also class politics is very accessible for someone who's like trying to start their life in america um and the 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 stories it is telling about like finding your place in the social ladder uh, were apparently very interesting and and uh, useful to folks joining America at that time. I would be interested to know more more about that. Okay, but yeah, I think that's with you. Were a place that if I had a little bit more just background knowledge on it, we'd have talked more about that. But sure, what are you gonna do? It's a cool book. People should read it. If you haven't, I can't imagine. It was another one of those books that got turned into an anime series, just like Anne Green Gables. <laughs> Good. I I'm very here for like <laughs> children's literature of the 19th century turned into anime. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, and you've if you're listening to this, you've probably at least been aware of uh like the various films and miniseries that have come from this book. It does mm-hmm. seem like it would lend itself well to a miniseries with all of the the way that the stories are told in the first half of the book. Okay. Um, if we did not touch on your fav your favorite part of Little Women. Or you also have problems with uh, Mrs. March's thoughts on a happy marriage, you can send them to us uh, via email at overduepod at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. A uh, bunch of folks reached out to us this past week, including Amy, Aaron, Katie, Rebecca, Chris, Becky, Jake, Kishin, Kara, LZ, Josh, Lindsay, Eric, Jordan, Graham, Tessa, Rachel, Michael, Colleen, Stephanie, Ronnie, and Melissa. Thanks, y'all. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? If they want to know more, they can go to OverduePodcast.com. Every week we try and pick a thing to tell you about, to focus on. This week I'm going to tell you about that new listener page we got there. 
Um, it's a list of, I think it's 15 or 20 at this point, episodes of the show that we like a lot. We actually need to go in and, and update it and maybe clean it up a little bit. But um, if you are trying to recommend uh, the show to one of your friends, and that's the main way that we grow is, is word of mouth over social media and real life, just regular <laughs> social Grabbing someone by the shoulders and telling them about our show. Do you yeah, like books? Do you like podcasts? Go to overduepodcast.com. Um, yeah, so if if you've got somebody who you're trying to onboard uh, and you don't want to send them back to episode one, which I would recommend against personally, <laughs> um, that new listener page has a bunch of episodes that we like and that we think you'll like too. Yeah. Andrew, yeah. what are you reading for next week? I am reading a book called A Girl at War, which is by uh, Sarah Novick. Yeah. And cool. it's it's not... It's a you know it is a war novel. It's not like a adolescent like metaphorical war. It's about like Yugoslavia and war. Oh, neat. So okay. it's so it'll be an interesting episode, I think. Um, and then we've also got I think we might have talked about this last week, but we've got our September schedule up now, um, and we are doing another Q and A bonus episode this month. So if you have questions for us, send them to overduepod at gmail um, we have a list of questions that were asked last time that we can post so we don't get duplicates. But yeah, do send us questions about the show or about any of the books that we've read or anything else. And we will try and get to those. Um, I think that's it. We good? We good. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until next Monday, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.